This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. As we stand, let us pray. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Father, thank you for your overflowing love. Pray, help us receive your light into our darkness, that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you sit down? So this is a conversation characteristic of 2019. Hey, how you doing? How's life? Crazy busy. Crazy busy. In fact, I really sense in this cultural moment a, uh, a busyness addiction. A busyness addiction. Um, are you a busyness addict? Well, what are the symptoms? What are the symptoms to a busyness addiction? There are many here, are three I want to highlight. First, um, the Sabbath or lack thereof. Do you find it impossible one day out of seven to maybe wake up and think, there is nothing, thank God, that I need to do today? I mean, emotionally, it should feel like if you're in a sports team, yesterday you won the cup. Or if you've managed a big, big project, yesterday it was finished. Like on time, on budget. There's a, ah, I have nothing I need to do today. A little taste of eternity. So a symptom is like a lack of a Sabbath every day. Do, do, do. Another symptom could be a lack of purpose. So do you wake up each morning with a clear sense of, this is whom God has made me to be. This is how I'm a gift to the world. This is my calling. I'm going to pursue it single-minded. Or... Do we feel stretched and pulled in many directions? Spread out like butter, never too much toast. And then thirdly, love or the lack thereof. Do we feel that 2019 has been a year in which we've grown in our capacity to love God and love others? Or have we found our relationships ragged, superficial, our sense of God being distant. Three symptoms of maybe a busyness addiction because we're busy, busy, busy. We don't have time for God or for other people or for Sabbath. Now, for those who are here at the nine o'clock, when I ask the children, you know, can you think of a, an adult who's busy? My, were the first to shoot at their hands. So this is, this is like confession. I am a busyness addict. Thank you for your affirmation. Um, and so I'm encouraged at least one person is going to benefit from today's message. But I think it is not just me. Our whole culture colludes in this busyness um, addiction. Now, is it a problem? Because sure, we can say like a heroin addiction is a problem. A porn addiction is a problem. A coffee addiction? A busyness addiction? Is that really a problem? Well, I mean, one way of thinking about it is if breaking the sixth commandment, do not murder, is a problem, why not breaking the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath, 
cannot also be a serious problem. From God's perspective, surely it is. But we know we don't want to live lives devoid of purpose and clarity. We don't live in a world where relationships are fractured and families are broken. We want to be full of peace and joy, but often find ourselves just rattling with stress and anxiety. Wouldn't we love to be less busy? Or would we? 2019 conversation. How's life crazy busy? What might 2020 conversations look different? And now is a great time to address this issue because we're in this weird window between Christmas Day and New Year's Eve and all our kind of rhythms are off and it's kind of fluid. This is a great time to stop and reassess and maybe change. So in this little message, I'm going to look at what are the causes of our busyness addiction and what might God's solution be. So the causes, I mean, for sure, there's this um, equation between being busy and being important. Oh, so-and-so is busy and important. I mean, I think this is a particularly middle-class illusion. I don't think the rest of the world necessarily thinks that, but we might kind of think busyness and importance and equate those two. But it's actually, I think the cause is a lot deeper. And I'm going to give us a metaphor to represent both the symptom and the cause. I want you to imagine ascension derelict. The lights are off, the heating's off, the windows are broken, cold air is going through, the, the pews are either ripped out or just lying, twisted fragments of wood. Um, there's just dust piled everywhere. The organ pipes are gone. Um, the flowers are gone. It's just gray. It's cold. It's desolate. It's forsaken. It's uninhabited. It's derelict. All right, Alex, is this part of a Morgan Stones capital campaign pitch? What's going on here? No, it's not. But it is a description of a church which I was in less than a year ago, which is 12 minutes drive um, east of here on Larimer Avenue. If you get the chance to go inside St. Peter's and Paul, similar dimensions, very different experience, because it is derelict. It is empty. There's just dust everywhere. Now, why am I describing that to you? Because that is a metaphor for the inner life of the busyness addict. Our inner sanctuary, our heart, desolate. It is a symptom and it's also a cause. Wait, how can a desolate inner life be a cause of a busyness addiction? Well, because we fill our time with our working on accomplishments and our appearances because that leaves no empty time to face the emptiness within. And because we don't address the emptiness within and its toxic effect on our capacity to love God and love others, it gets worse. The dilapidation increases. And so we're even more tempted to fill our time with stuff to do and distractions, and the cycle continues and the derelict sanctuary deteriorates further. Because, I mean, let's be honest, who wants to face those unsettling truths that we avoid? Like our broken families, our unwise decisions, our fear of being ordinary, our sense of being unlovable if we're not overachieving, our inability to sustain lasting relationships with real people who really know us and love us. 
our drift and distance from God. We fill our time working on our accomplishments and appearances because we don't know how to fill ourselves. But we were never meant to. We were never meant to. Here is the good news. Moving from cause to God's solution, moving to Isaiah. All right, Isaiah, Isaiah. I was brought up in England saying one. You said the other here, tomato, tomato. We're going to carry on. Um, Let's look at Isaiah 61 verse 10. And Isaiah begins with joy. And wouldn't we prefer to begin 2020 with joy and not anxiety? 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice, not in his accomplishments or appearances, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Well, Alex, there's a beautiful Bible words, and that's all very nice, but what does that mean? What's that got to do with this? Well, to unpick this, um, we need to think about who is the I and who is the me. When Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice, clothe me with the garments of salvation, the commentator suggests that Isaiah is voicing Jerusalem. He's embodying Jerusalem in his voice, and he has this vision of, I will greatly rejoice as God covers clothes, transforms Jerusalem. All right, nice. So what? It's really important to understand Jerusalem in the Old Testament narrative. So God's people rescued out of Egypt, called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, representing God's character and goodness to the world. And God plants them in this promised land and the city of David, Jerusalem. And then David's son, Solomon, establishes the temple. And when he consecrates the temple, you read in 1 Chronicles 7, God's presence so fills the temple, so full of holiness and joy and glory that the priests can't get even in. And this is the highlight of the whole narrative. God fully present, gloriously real, filling the sanctuary. And as a consequence, when the Queen of Sheba turns up two chapters later, she says, wow, how happy are your people? How wise is their king? This is the pinnacle of the Old Testament narrative. Jerusalem, the temple, full of God, of glory, and in Solomon's decisions, and his son's decisions, and turning away from God, and it all falls apart. And the Assyrians take out the northern kingdom, and the Babylonians take out the southern kingdom, and Jerusalem is trashed. What's my point? Verse 4, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, God says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. In other words, when these words, when Isaiah is speaking, he is speaking in the desolate place. He is surrounded by broken wood and smashed windows, to take the metaphor. He is in the desolate place, in this forsaken land, in this judged land. And yet, he can voice a future Jerusalem, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Point being, is Isaiah's hope Surrounded by the dust and the rubble, his hope is that God will intervene. And hope is essential for change. For us. So a little illustration. Um, We live in the East End and bought a house in 2015. And there are some projects that I have hope about. There are projects that are like within my very limited capacity and resources and time. And I have hope. And those projects get done. 
And there are other projects that go beyond my capacities and resources and time, and I just ignore them. I don't even want to think about them. Because isn't that how we respond to problems that we just don't have any hope for? Isn't that true in our relationships? Or maybe in our work situations? Those situations where we have no hope, we don't engage. There's no hope for change. Isaiah has hope. And he focuses on God, and he expects God to intervene and transform. And God does. But it's not initially as Isaiah expects. How does God intervene? We move to John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. Maybe too busy. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem. He was desolate. He was forsaken. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. So here's the connection. As busyness addicts, we fill our time because we don't know how to fill ourselves. But we were never meant to. The message from John to the busyness addict is to say, actually, open up about your emptiness and let God's fullness enter in. Let God's light into your darkness. Life is draining And only our creator has the infinite abundance of joy and presence and love and grace to ensure that we can be fully filled and no longer need to be stressing about our accomplishments and our appearances. John 1.16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The way to kick our busyness addiction is to hold on to the hope of Isaiah that God will intervene. And to hear the message of John, to receive God into our emptiness. Let him in to restore that derelict inner sanctuary. Well, Alex, beautiful biblical metaphor is lovely. Yes, so what? How is that actually going to change anything? What do we have to do? What's the next step? How are we going to do that? I think the solution was hinted at by uh, the symptom. And the solution really from God is the Sabbath. That one day in seven, that one day that's a glimpse of eternity, that one day we wake and we think there's nothing I need to do. I can choose God, choose joy, choose to be present. It's really hard, really hard in our cultural moment. If we lived in a society where everyone broke the sixth commandment and murdered, it'd be pretty hard not to, to fight. If we're in a society where everyone committed adultery, it'd be really hard not to join in. We're in a society where everyone breaks the Sabbath. It's really hard, but that's kind of the point. As God's people, we're called to be different, to show the world a better way. Instead of rattling with stress and anxiety, what if we overflowed with joy and peace? What if we had clear calling, capacity to love the Sabbath? So here are seven thoughts about the Sabbath um, in no no particular order. So first, start well. So whether you start your 24 hours, your one day out of seven, 
uh, dusk or dawn, begin with this, ah, I have nothing that I need to accomplish. This period is going to be a little glimpse of eternity. I'm going to trust to the Lord everything that I normally worry about. It's his problem, not mine. He's asked me to do this. He can take care of the consequences. There's that reliance. Start well. Start with a prayer of thanks that the Sabbath is God's gift and a real chance, a vital practice of growing in our capacity to love him and others. Start well. Second, be open. Imagine one day out of seven in which you allowed his fullness to engage with your emptiness, in which you sat in his presence and didn't achieve anything, but let him delight in you. What might he say to you? Why did he delight in making you? What particular gift are you to the world? Be open to your emptiness and his goodness. Isaiah 62.5, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Why is he thankful that he made you? Write those down. And as you open up to him, he'll probably open our eyes to those relationships that have been neglected. So let's be open to whatever next steps he might nudge that might lead to reconciliation. Loving others better. Start well, be open. Third, thankfulness. A thankfulness list. From his fullness we have received, grace upon grace. Well, spend some time just writing those down. How has his grace been made manifest to you. Fill a page. I'm often surprised. Fourth, a worry list. Write down all the things you normally worry about and set it on fire or put it in a box. Say, those are your problems, God. You've asked me to remember the Sabbath so you can remember my worries. I'm going to forget them and be free. 24 hours. Fifth, unplug. Ruthlessly reject whatever technology we normally go to to fill our time. It is virtually impossible to face our emptiness when there's a screen that we can just turn on. They have to go for 24 hours. Uninstall, unplug, set an out of office, whatever. Sixth, prepare. Maybe this should have been first. What do you need to do before the Sabbath so it can be a good Sabbath? Who needs to be informed? What plans need to be made? What will make meals easy? What means you have to do those kind of chores, those responsibilities? Who might need to be called in? Prepare. And as we think about that, we realize, wait a second, seventh, we need to do this in community. Because some might be thinking, well, Sabbath, yeah, sounds beautiful. It's pretty unrealistic. There are some things which just need to be done. Or some things that need to, some things that need done. Is that right, Pittsburgh? <laughs> so, you know, you might be thinking, I don't have the privilege of some kind of hashtag blessed Instagram, gourmet, cappuccino, moleskin, notebook kind of day. There is no way I can have a Sabbath by myself. Exactly. 
I think we need to do this in community. What can we do in our six-day stretch that might facilitate someone else's Sabbath? Offering childcare, meals, rides, chores. What might be life-giving to you that is someone else's burden? What a gift. Are you part of a community group here at Ascension? Can you reach out for help? Can you offer help? If you want to find out more about community groups, talk to me or any staff member here. But we need to allow ourselves both to like let that self-sufficient facade drop and depend upon others, and we need to realize that we have gifts and how can we realistically offer help. Seven things. Start well. Be open. Thankfulness. Write any worries. Unplug. Prepare. And do this in community. And I really think the Sabbath in 2020 is going to be the cure to our addiction to business. Wouldn't it be wonderful at the end of 2020, we found that our capacity to love God and love others had really expanded. Who would benefit? Because being crazy busy, working on our accomplishments and appearances always leaves us running on empty. We cannot fill ourselves. We were never meant to. But from his fullness we can all receive grace upon grace. And that is what he offers. Hold on to hope like Isaiah. God can intervene. I just love. So when I was back in Italy, there was this really depressing ministry situation. No solution we could think of. But reading in Deuteronomy chapter 8 about God's unexpected solutions, manna from heaven, we thought, wait a second, the past does not predict the future because God is free to act in the middle. And in this particular case, um, he sent this Italian student who was called Salvatore, which means salvation. God is always free to act. Isaiah knew it. We can know it. We have hope. Therefore, we let his fullness transform our emptiness. And the derelict sanctuary returns to splendor. And as we get a taste for the Sabbath, we will grow our appetite for eternity. So as we look to that great day when Jesus returns and makes all things new, let's say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you move towards us. That from your fullness, we can receive. Thank you for the gift of the Sabbath one day to attend to you, be open to you and to those around us. Pray that ascension and through ascension, all the communities we are connected with might better enjoy the rest that you offer that is a glimpse of the rest to come. Pray, fill us with your Holy Spirit, lead us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen.